If you'll join me in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, this morning we are looking at verses 18 and 19 as we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. If you're using that blue ESV Bible, you can find the text on page 984, page 984. The title of my sermon this morning is God Glorifying Marriage. And our key words for our worshipers in training are husband, wife, and marriage. Now, according to a report entitled The State of Our Unions, The Social Health of Marriage in America, it says, quote, as an adult stage in the life course, marriage is shrinking. Americans are living longer, marrying later, exiting marriage more quickly, and choosing to live together before marriage, after marriage, in between marriage, and as an alternative to marriage. A small but growing percentage of American adults will never marry, and as a consequence, marriage is surrounded by longer periods of partnered or unpartnered singlehood over the course of a lifetime. Now, in America, approximately half of the population over the age of 18 is married, and on average, for men to marry, the average age is 30, and for women, it is 28. And the difference uh, of about 8% of the population and 8 years in age only since 1990. So it used to be about 58% and about 8 years younger that people got married even as recently as 1990. As the marriage rates have declined, divorce rates have increased, especially among older Americans. Divorce rates over the age of 65, have tripled in the last 30 years as it has become a more acceptable practice in our culture. 88% of Americans believe that love is the number one reason to marry. 64% believe that having shared interests is the number one thing that helps people stay married, followed closely behind by 61% who believe it's most important to be sexually compatible, and 56% believe that marriage is about sharing the household chores. (laughs) It's nice to have a little help, but that's the number one reason to get married? That's the number one reason to have children to do your household chores. (laughs) Now, the number of Americans that are living with a partner that they are not married to has risen by 30% in the last decade to about 20 million people. And the majority of the population believes it does not make a difference in our society whether two unmarried people in a relationship are cohabitating or not. Approximately 40% of new marriages in 2019 are remarriages where at least one of the spouses was previously married to another partner. Now, I'm no statistician, I'm no sociologist, but I think these numbers speak very obviously for themselves. Did you know that for a couple to live together before they are married, the chances are ten times more likely that they will end in divorce? Culturally, the lower our opinions are about marriage, the more open we are to alternative arrangements with marriage, the higher the rate of divorce has grown and the more significant the ramifications on this culture have been in breaking up the home and breaking down the moral fabric of the culture on the whole. Sick marriages in a culture are a very prominent symptom of moral degradation and bankruptcy. And as we've been working through Paul's letter to the Colossians, we have seen this all-encompassing supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ over all things. Remember, 
Paul began this letter with a strong theological foundation. He identified Jesus Christ as the one for whom, to whom, and through whom all things were created and sustained. He defended the truth about Christ against the false teachers of Gnosticism. He emphasized the divinity of Christ and his all-encompassing involvement in every aspect of our lives. And then you remember at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul transitions to the more practical application of everything that he laid out in the first couple of chapters. He gave us a list of imperatives and commands on what we are to put on if we are believers and what we are to put off if we are believers so that we will be wearing the full suit of righteousness. We were then urged to love and to be unified in the body of Christ, encouraging one another even through song and the lifting up of our voices and the uniting of our hearts together All of these things, whether we're eating or drinking or sleeping or waking or working or doing our chores or sitting on the couch or whatever it is, to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, just in case there's still question as to whether or not this includes everything in our lives, Paul transitions to emphasize, and we're going to see this over the next few weeks, our domestic relationships. This morning we're looking at the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife and what God commands of each of us. And next time we'll look at the relationship between children and parents. And then after that we will see the relationship between between workers and their bosses. Now what does a godly home look like that is pleasing to the Lord? And that is working all things out in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the context of Paul's command here in these two verses. When we are transformed by the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is it apparent in our marriages? When we're transformed by the power of God in the gospel, is it apparent to our spouse, to our children, to our co-workers, to our neighbors? When we are transformed by the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what does it look like even in the most central, the most immediate relationships in our lives? As it pertains to these relationships, does it even matter that we are Christians? Do we look any different than the statistics that I just provided? Well, let's take a look this morning, beginning in our text, Colossians chapter 3 in verse 18. Very simply, the Apostle Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, if you've ever read through the New Testament, you know these commands come up several times in various forms, all emphasizing the important roles and responsibilities of husbands and wives toward one another, how we are to relate to each other. So for most of us, there's probably nothing new in terms of the commands for us this morning, but if you've been married for more than a day or so, let's be honest, We all need to be encouraged, we all need to be exhorted, we all need to be reminded of these areas regularly, don't we? So don't tune out. The Lord surely has some wisdom for all of us here today. And for those of you who aren't married, it's easy to read texts like this and to say, well, that doesn't apply to me. So I'm just going to ride this Sunday out and maybe next week there will be something for me. Please don't do that. Listen, you are a member of the body of Christ. And as a member of the body of Christ, you have a responsibility toward the rest of the body. 
So one of the things that, that this can help you to do is to know how to be praying for your married brothers and sisters. You can know more about how to encourage your brothers and sisters who have a spouse. You don't have to be married to go to your brother and sister and say, you know, I want to encourage you in the Lord in your marriage. Sometimes, sometimes you even have the responsibility to say, I know I'm not married, and I know I don't understand all the dynamics of what that looks like, but what I do know is that what the Scriptures teach on this matter and what I want to challenge you on and I'm seeking to challenge you on is a certain aspect of your marriage that I don't think align with the Scriptures. Now, I know in our culture, in 2019, it's not really popular to, uh, to speak to things that you don't have a lived experience of, but I have a good example for you of someone who did that. The Apostle Paul. <laughs> not married, and yet giving us very direct imperatives in the Scripture about marriage. So de despite what all of the woke scolds want to say, as Christians with your Bibles and understanding all that it teaches, you have a responsibility to fulfill your part as a member of the body of Christ in providing encouragement, in providing prayer, in providing accountability, regardless of your lived experience. Truth does not change based on whether or not you have experienced it. Now, the reality is that the language of these verses is certainly considered politically incorrect in our culture today, and it is despised. However, also in our culture today, there's an absolute breakdown of the most basic of relationships that are addressed and that we will address over the next few weeks that the Lord gives us as we have opportunity to see how the home functions in a way that glorifies God. That we not waver from God's command in the hope that we will be able to skirt around the touchy issues of our day. And here's the reality. The more faithful we are to work out the implications of the gospel in our marriages and in our parenting and in our working relationships, the more we stand apart from the rest of the world and the more the rest of the world looks at these relationships and says, how is it that they're able to stay married? How is it that their children continue to walk with them? And they're not, all these relationships are not falling apart in a mess and deteriorating. That doesn't mean all of our relationships as Christians are going to be perfect by any means. But there is something of a difference in the Christian home when we are faithful to Christ. So as Christians, we should spend far less time talking about the breakdown of all of the relationships in our society around us, which is patently obvious for all to see. And we should spend more time talking about relationships in the way that the Scriptures want us to. What are the objective, reasonable, workable, God-glorifying relationship sustaining principles that we have to guide us? We're going to look at two this morning, very simple, as they're laid out right here in the text. We're being called to a mutual covenant relationship in our marriages. The first obligation we see in verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, this command goes all the way back to Genesis, as so often things do as we read the New Testament. Remember back when God was handing out the curses because of the sin of Adam? And when he addressed the woman, he said in chapter 3 and verse 16, he said, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
Now, this specifically wasn't a curse placed on Eve. Rather, he's saying as a result of the curse, this is going to be the result. As a result of the fall, the cursed nature of creation and the sin that comes out of that, you are going to push against the natural ordained reality that I've created for a good, orderly, loving, unified marriage relationship. Remember, God created Eve as a helper for Adam out of his body, but... Because of sin, because of the fallen nature of the world, she would have no want within her to be agreeable to her husband, but would rather have a voice and actions and a life that is lived contrary to him. Now, before I get to the imperative here that Paul gives us, I want to make a few things abundantly clear about this text. And about Christianity and our understanding of, uh, of our gender roles specifically. Throughout the history of humanity, women have generally been treated poorly and less than human and less than what God commands and less than what God requires in the Bible. It does not take too long in reading the actions of men in the early parts of the Bible even to learn that men had a sinful disposition toward women in many different ways. Under Jewish law, Now, this is not according to God, but in the man-made civil realm in Jewish society, a woman was considered a thing. She was a possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his, his material goods. She had no legal rights whatsoever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause whatsoever, but the wife had no rights at all, even if she had what what anyone would consider a, a good reason to, uh, to challenge her husband, let alone to leave the relationship. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire, uh, of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go to the market. She lived in a woman's apartment and did not join the men for their meals. They sat alone and they were there for when their husbands called on them. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude. There was demanded a complete chastity of her life. But her husband could go on any way he chose, and he could enter into as many relationships as he wanted outside of his marriage, and it incurred no social stigma whatsoever. So both under Jewish law and under Greek law and custom, all the privileges of life belonged to the husband, and all of the duties were given over to the wife. How convenient. Now, last month... A few weeks ago, I caught a little fire from some concerned citizens about an article I wrote for a website called Desirable Ends, in which I dared to agree with the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson about forcing Muslim women to wear burqas and said that it is oppressive and ridiculous. And while Johnson said they look like letterboxes and bank robbers, I took issue with his conclusion and said they look far more like the ghosts on Pac-Man. Now listen... I'm not insulting Islamic women. I want to stand up for them. Because what they are forced to do is oppressive and ridiculous. It is a form of slavery. And Islam's views on women are far worse ever than anything we even saw in early Judaism and Greek culture. They are utterly oppressive and slave-like, and yet the criticisms that are leveled about oppression of women... Where do the criticisms get leveled? Not against Islam, 
They're not toward the religion that was founded by a man whose first wife was 12 years old among many others. No, they're leveled at Christians because we believe, verse 18, that women are called to submit to their husbands. But what is often ignored, of course, is that Christianity has always insisted on a very high view of women. It doesn't conceal their natural beauty, but it celebrates God's kindness in gifting His created world with their unique gifts and their unique attributes. Alongside man, God created woman in His image and His likeness. He gave her the powerful and important role of childbearing. He provided her with opportunities to prosper her and her family. And He uses her and continues to use many women in remarkable ways throughout the history of redemption. For example, Deborah and Rahab and Hannah and Anna and Mary and Rhoda and Phoebe. And we could go on and on. What the world... Jewish, Greek, Muslim, and others have always assumed should be the role of women, the Lord has countered in the Bible with striking clarity regarding the value and importance of women. So the Bible shows us that while the roles of men and women are different, they are different, in Christ there is no superiority, but there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The command given here by Paul is not one of servitude. It is not one of enslavement. It is a matter of roles. It is not a matter of worth or value or importance. Now, when Paul writes, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, is the point that all women should submit themselves to all men? No. For example, can a woman be a man's boss or a supervisor in the workplace? Yes, absolutely. Are there circumstances in which a man is called to submit to a woman? Yes. The context of what Paul is writing is very specific to the marriage relationship. Paul is giving specific guidance to wives as it pertains to their marriages. This is a very unique command here. But it is helpful, perhaps, for, the, for us first to consider what submission is not. There's a unique command here. Submission is not a father-daughter relationship whereby the husband tells his wife what to do and how to do it, and she does it without input or without any opportunity to ask questions. We shouldn't probably be parenting like that either on some level, but we'll deal with that next week. Submission is not a wife following her husband into sin. If he's leading in a direction that's contrary to the Word of God, her obligation, first and foremost, is to follow God and not her man. Submission is is not a woman accepting abuse of any kind. If a woman is being abused in any way, she should seek immediate help and get out of that situation, not simply assume that she's doing what she should do to be a good wife. Submission is not agreeing to everything. Wives have and should share their opinions in the home and seek to persuade their husbands when they believe something is right. In fact, 1 Peter 3 actually hints at this. In a godly manner, you can have a right-hearted goal to bring about a change in your husband's life. Submission does not mean living through your husband. In other words, while he has a responsibility to lead your home spiritually... He has a responsibility to lead the family. 
you can and you should have a life of your own that includes your own personal spiritual growth. You should have your friends. You should have your hobbies. You should have your goals and dreams and aspirations. You should read your Bibles. You should pray and not depend on your husband to do all of this for you. Christ is supreme. Your husband is not. A wife's allegiance is to Christ first, not to her husband. In fact, a wife can only live with her husband rightly when she first submits to Christ absolutely. And then, and only then, will she be in a position to submit to her husband without committing idolatry. So a wife may see a need for change in her husband. She may and should seek the transformation of her husband in godly ways, even while respecting him as the leader of the home, as her leader, as her protector, as her provider. Now, here's what submission does mean. It means that husbands should be providing leadership and protection and provision in their homes, and we'll consider that more in a moment. And when the husband is providing proper biblical leadership, the wife should follow that leadership so so long as it doesn't mean that we're always going to, uh, that we know we're not always going to get it right. No authority of any kind has the promise of inerrancy. Authority is often used wrongly, and wise, spirit-filled husbands will seek the counsel of their wives and will recognize that the leadership role includes knowing when to delegate certain things within the home. So, for example, perhaps a wife uh, is trained as an accountant, and her husband is a plumber. And while he can do okay with finances and sorting all of that out, it makes more sense for his wife to take control of the finances. Is he biblically prohibited from delegating that responsibility to his wife? Not at all. There's nothing I can find in the scriptures that would say so. That may be good leadership on his part. And this goes for a whole host of things in the house. One person doesn't have to do certain chores all the time if there's Uh, the availability for both of them to do them. Certain decisions need to be made, ways of training and discipling and, and disciplining our children. The one thing a husband cannot delegate to his wife is his role as the spiritual leader of the home. And so often that's what men want to do. And so often, because of our inclination toward what God told us in Genesis 3, wives are quick to want to take up that role. Again, remember what he said in Genesis. And unfortunately, many men are willing to let it happen and to just let their wives take over leading the family altogether. It's a whole lot easier that way because we're just like our father Adam who was sleeping under the tree. Maybe not with his eyes closed, but he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do when Eve was being tempted by the serpent. Now, I cannot really think about what Paul writes here in Colossians and not think about the similar commands that are given in the book of Ephesians. And this is what Paul is gesturing toward, what's going on in the big picture. Husbands in marriage are to be representatives of Christ, and wives are to be representatives of the church And in so doing, this means that wives will follow the leadership of their husbands. And that framework should change how we look at all of this. Because it takes it completely out of the realm that the world assumes marriage is, which uh, as we uh, talk about marriage in the ways that we look at the Scriptures, the world says, well, that's chauvinism or that's authoritarianism. 
Instead, what we are seeking to do, according to the Scriptures, is to rightly place all of this marital relationship in beautiful interaction between two people in joyful, willing submission to one another, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, understanding our roles as husbands and wives. And so the church doesn't look at Christ and say, he's incompetent. He can't lead us well. He doesn't know what he's doing. I know better, so we're going to go another way. We would never, as the church, think to say that. If you ever hear that come out of my mouth, seriously, drag me down and beat me and throw me out. The church would never say such a thing. And as soon as we do that, we've abandoned the faith. And so Paul is saying, likewise, wives shouldn't come to their marriages in that way either. They should and they must treat their husbands with respect and see them in a way that the church looks to Christ. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 5.33, let the wife see that she respects her husband. Last thing, we'll move on to husbands. Wives are not only wives to their husbands, but they're also their sisters in Christ if you're both believers. There's a very unique way in which a Christian wife can be a caring sister toward her imperfect husband who is also her brother in Christ. She will, for example, from time to time have to follow Paul's admonition in Galatians chapter 6. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. She will in times have to obey Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. These things don't go away when you get married. In fact, they're going to happen more often in that relationship than any other relationship that you have. Wives, your husbands need you to help them and not just agree with them all the time. Trust me, I know these guys. They need your help. Sometimes the best thing you can do for them is to disagree with them because they may not be thinking in light of what the Lord has revealed in the Scriptures. And listen, wives, I, I hope I've made this abundantly clear. You are beautiful, you are valuable, you are precious, and you are no less worthy in this world than men. You are necessary, and we could not live and function in this world without you. We need you, we love you, and in Christ we think you are more precious than jewels. So no matter what the world tells you, we Christian men think about you, it's all a bunch of lies. You are finer than gold. Secondly, Paul tells us in verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. In the first century, this was a radical command. A lot of research has been done looking into the extra-biblical household rules prior to the Christian church and during the time of the apostles, and nothing comes even close to what Paul gives us here. First, the idea that a husband is to love his wife is radical enough, but then the command follows that we are not harsh with them. This is otherworldly at the time. Now, a few things we need to take note of. First, husbands are never commanded to rule their wives, but to love them. I know this may shake the way that we think about this a little bit, but it should. We often read into the text what we want to read into the text, and it doesn't always say what we want it to say. 
What does the command say? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The Bible does not say, husbands, take steps to ensure that your wife will submit to you. Nor does it say, husbands, exercise authority over your wives. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking, but it says wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. You're right, it sure does. And what does it tell you? Love your wife and don't be harsh with her. You know what helps your wife submit to you? Let me explain it this way. If you have a job, and at that job, you have a boss, do you prefer that that guy comes to you every day and says, hey, before you begin your work today, don't forget, you work for me. I hired you. I can just as easily fire you. And you better do what I say in the exact way that I say it, because I am the boss. Now, some of you have had bosses like that. Do you prefer that guy, or do you prefer the guy who says, hey, man, you're doing a great job. And the whole company is better because of what you're doing. You've taught me some great things. We work well together. I value your, feedbook, your feedback, your input, and I, I want you to continue uh, working hard and doing great things for our company. Now, if you tell me you like the first guy better, you are a liar. <laughs> Nobody wants that. And if you want a boss that doesn't mess around with telling you that he's the boss... What makes you think that your wife wants a husband who walks around the house doing the same thing? If the words, woman, (laughs) you're supposed to submit to me. If those words have ever exited your mouth, first, I am surprised you're here this morning. But second, fellas, you're doing it wrong. The thing that's wonderful here about God and how he gives this command through the Apostle Paul is that he gives us our lanes. And if we stay in our lanes and if we don't reach across and try to take over the wheel from one another and steer for our spouse, we can keep the car on the road together. It's the second we reach over to take control of what they're doing that we start to run off into a ditch. And here's the thing, you will never find a place in Scripture where man's headship in his home means that it's for his self-satisfaction or his self-exaltation. In the same way as it is for a pastor or a deacon or a church member or a master, the Bible always presents headship as being oriented toward other people. If there is a servant leader in the home, it must and should first and foremost be a husband. There are few things more grotesque than the thought that a man would exploit his God-given responsibility to lovingly lead his wife by perverting it to justify satisfying his own fleshly desires. Listen, this is not the power of the superior over the inferior. Human nature is sinfully inclined to distort this idea of submission of the wife into an idea of the superiority of the husband. And there are some real boneheaded dudes out there in this world that have done exactly that. They've twisted, they've abused the scriptures, and in turn, they've abused and twisted biblical principles. And so sadly, they've often abused their marriages and ultimately have abused their spouses. This isn't about issuing commands, nor does it mean that a husband is the sole decision maker. Such attitudes, such ways of treating wives because they're called to submit to their husbands isn't masculine at all. In fact, it's weak, it's fruitless. 
It is ungodly, it is dishonoring to Christ, and it will never bring about the results that men want. So what does it mean to love our wives and to not be harsh with them? It means, gentlemen, that we have a responsibility, not a right. You understand that? We have a responsibility to fulfill, not a right to demand. Is your wife called by God to submit to you as her husband? Yes. But who is she responsible for in fulfilling that command? She's responsible before God. What is your responsibility before God? To love your wife and to not be harsh with her. Don't be an authoritarian, self-serving jerk. You are called to lead and to honor and to sacrifice for your wife in the same way that Christ leads and honors and sacrifices for the church, even to the point of death. Loving your wife means, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, that we will honor our wives and that we will live with them in an understanding way. I can't tell you how many guys I've talked to in marriage counseling who just sit there dumbfounded when these they have these goofy looks on their face when I ask a few questions of their wives and they start saying all kinds of stuff about what they like and and what they want to see in their marriage and the things they're disappointed with and what they struggle with in their own life and their leadership in the home and on and on because their husbands never took the time to understand what the wife was thinking, feeling, and understanding about her own life and marriage. Brothers, do you know your wife? Do you understand your wife? Now, that's maybe a loaded question, I know. It's like calculus to some of us, I get that. But it is our job. It is our responsibility to live with our wives in an understanding way. And you know what? It's an amazing opportunity because when we love our wives and live with them in an understanding way, we get to be in this covenant relationship with someone with whom we will experience something of the blessing of God in a way that we cannot experience in any other relationship we will ever have. Marriage is one of God's greatest gifts to his people if we are willing to fulfill our calling and our own calling at that when we stop worrying so much about what the other person is doing all the time and start focusing on what we can and must and should do as our responsibility before the Lord. So brothers, here's the test. Are you loving and caring for your wife to the extent that Christ is loving and caring for you? I'm guessing I know the answer. So until that happens, keep pressing on, keep getting better by God's grace and in the power of the Spirit. Sisters, are you submitting to your husband's leadership in your home knowing that God has given him the important and difficult responsibility to represent Christ in your home and you represent to the world the beautiful, honored position of the church? Again, I'm guessing I know the answer to that question for you, so keep pressing on and keep getting better by God's grace in the power of the Spirit. Now, friends, some of you are here this morning, and I know that all of this sounds like crazy stuff to you. But here's what you won't hear outside the church. Only in Christ can you understand that it is an absolute joy and privilege and a gift from God to fulfill these commands before the Lord because you know that they honor and glorify Him. Only in Christ do you understand that the closer we move toward glorifying God and fulfilling our roles, the closer we move toward one another in marital communion. 
Do you want a loving, peaceful marriage where you can honestly and often look at that person in your home and say, this is my best friend in the whole entire world and there's no one else in the world that I'm closer to than this person and I love them and I cherish them and I want the best for them and I will give everything for their good. Ultimately, it is only because of God's grace that we can have that response, and it is only in Christ that we fully understand the implications of what that means in a loving marriage relationship. That doesn't put me first. It doesn't even put the other person first. It puts Christ first. And the more we aim at Christ, the more we grow in communion together. Do you want a a loving, happy, healthy, growing, faithful marriage? I think that we all do. Then you must look first to Christ by faith who has shown us what true marriage is. He has shown us in his relationship with his church. He has shown us, Christ has shown us in that he willingly came from heaven to earth to live a perfect law-fulfilling life to do all that God commanded on, the, on behalf of the church. He shows us in that he willingly went to the cross to die, to take on himself the penalty of sin that was due to all who are in his church. He shows us in that he was willingly laid in the grave for three days on behalf of the church. And so we know that in our imperfection, Christ has fulfilled the law for us. We know that when it is due to us that we must die because of the sin in our life that we commit every single day, that Christ has died in our place. It is in knowing that even though we should be dead and buried in the grave, never to see the light of day, but only to experience the torments of hell, that Christ himself has done so on our behalf that one day we might be raised again with him to live forever and ever. That is what Christ has done for his bride. And brothers, that's what we are called to do for ours. To live for them in such a sacrificial way that the world looks in awe and says, how? And says, why? Why? Because Christ has for me. Because Christ has for us. And that doesn't mean that any of this is easy. It's only an easier yoke when we walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's nothing easy about it, but Christ responds. How does he respond to all of this? I think it's in the words of a song that we sing. When through fiery trials the pathway shall lie. Can anyone deny that sometimes marriage is filled with fiery trials. My grace, all sufficient, will be thy supply. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Brothers and sisters, we need grace to make all of this happen. We need the gospel. We need the death and resurrection of Christ to be for us because if it is not, we have no hope. But when Christ is for us and we are in him, we can be self-sacrificing. We can be submitting. We can be loving and understanding. We can be respectful to one another, respecting 
Our husbands respecting and loving our wives who love and cherish one another in a way that makes Christ's relationship to the church look as good and as beautiful and as glorious as it truly is because it truly is. That's the call, brethren. Christ in the church. How does it look in your home? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that comes to us so often from your word. Lord, for most of us here this morning as Christians, we've, we've heard these things. Many of us have heard them at our very own weddings. And yet how easy it is in the day-to-day of life to forget what it is that you call us to. This great high calling, this enormous responsibility that you have given to your people to present to the world this beautiful picture of what the relationship is between Christ and his church. And Lord, we admit openly this morning that none of us fulfills this in the way that we ought or that we want to. And yet as imperfect people, we live by your grace moment by moment, day by day. And it is by your grace that we can behold all that is ours in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as that continues to transform us and continues to transform our relationships, that we might draw nearer to one another, that we might be more faithful and able to fulfill all that you have called us to. Would you help us to do that, God? Not for our own sake only, but most importantly for your glory. And so that the church so that the church would be seen and understood as it ought, that Christ would be made to be seen as great and glorious as he truly is. And so we pray you would do all of this for your name's sake. And in Jesus' name, amen.